What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to have you with us. America is under attack. Yeah, that was true on September 11. That was true on January 6. And while a lot of Americans may not yet realize it, that's true again today. The difference is that so far, this latest attack on America is a nonviolent coup. It's taking place across the country. It's led by Donald Trump himself. It's being carried out by his loyal followers, especially in all the red states and swing states. And its purpose is clear to rig our election system so that no matter how many votes Democrats get, Republicans always win. That's right. The man who complained about a rigged election is now trying to rig all elections. Big time. So what can we do about it? How can Democrats fight back? Can Democrats still win in 2022? And if so, how? Brian Boitler, today's guest, has been tracking this ongoing coup and warning Democrats they have to take it seriously and combat it aggressively. Boitler's editor-in-chief of Crooked Media, a media company formed by Obama alumni and home of the great podcast, Pod Save America. Brian Boitler, welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me on. You know, I want to start with something that um, is getting a lot of attention, an article by uh, Bart Gelman in this month's Atlantic, something you've been writing about and talking about, too, that our democracy itself is under attack on many fronts. Gelman says that the Trump coup is already underway. Is that threat real? And what can we do about it? It certainly appears to be real. The people who are orchestrating it have a blueprint in mind. They have a, an episode to look back on in 2020 where they sort of attempted what they appear to be gearing up to attempt again, but they ran into some obstacles. And w what's been happening in the almost year since is an effort to defeat those obstacles so that they're not there next time. Whether you can predict then that they will attempt it and that it will all go as they have planned in their heads is, is sort of hard to say, but they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't at least contemplating the idea. And that action is taking place how so? At the state level, at the federal level? Where do we see it? It's mostly at the state level. It's Donald Trump and his allies sort of attempting to root out anyone in Republican politics who wasn't a sort of participant in or supporter of, even tacitly, the 2020 effort to overturn the election results, replacing them with pliant Trump loyalists and people who even say that they think that the 2020 election was stolen, that they wouldn't have certified the results of the election in their states. And uh, I think the idea is that there won't be people at the state level, like we saw in, in, in figures like Brad Raffensperger, who would, uh, who would refuse to go along with an effort to overturn the results of the election. And the hope would be that by getting people who seem committed to the idea of, of, of playing along with Trump, that when push came to shove, they would do what Trump wanted, materialize the 11,000 missing votes, 
or just simply appoint slate of electors for Trump, whatever it is that would be required to make a state that went for the Democratic candidate to go for the Republican candidate. Right. And one other level I guess, would be state legislatures, we've seen some of them already passing laws that would give the state legislators themselves right? The ultimate authority to decide who won the election or what electors are sent to the Congress. Right. In 2020, there were maybe four states where Donald Trump thought he might have the the people in place that he needed to overturn the Biden's victory, give him the victory instead, or at least create a cloud of confusion around the results. He didn't ultimately have that. And so the idea, I think, in, in 2024 would be that there'd be pliant figures in place at the state level And then you can look to the federal level for a sort of fail safe where if Republicans control the House of Representatives and the Senate, they could characterize as disputed any states that Trump claims to have won, even though he lost and and say that he actually won those or that true outcome in those states can't be determined. So they don't count for purposes of uh, of of the electoral vote count. Um, and, and then you're in, in, in a, in a scenario where perhaps the Congress is, is picking the, the winner of the presidency and giving it to the loser. So is this in effect January 6th all over again, but in a nonviolent form? Yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of cloaking the, you know, a lot of it was happening sort of behind the scenes from November 3rd or November 7th of last year through January 6th, the sort of goal would be to, to, to try to use lawfare and proceduralism and having people in place who have ministerial power to abuse their power to give the election to the loser, but cloak it in this sheen of legitimacy because it's being conducted not by rioters with with clubs and mace and guns, but by lawyers and by by people who work in the Secretary of State's office. Or, you know, you see in eroding democracies abroad that it doesn't always or even often happen through violent force. It happens by the erosion of legitimacy within the democratic system. Well, so, so then the question is, if this is happening, and it is, and if it's so serious, and it is, and so fundamentally threatens to undermine our democratic system, why aren't people more uh, concerned about it? Why aren't Democrats raising more hell about it? I have a couple theories about why you don't see more alarm sounding by Democrats. I think half of it is that when they won their governing trifecta after the, the, the Georgia runoffs last year, they realized they'd have consolidated control in Washington. That meant that they had a, a substantive legislative agenda that they wanted to pass, the Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda. And they've been doing that. It's just taken much longer than I think they anticipated it would or wanted, and that the, the thinking earlier in Biden's presidency, particularly when his polling was above water instead of below water, was that they would pass his economic agenda and then turn to the democracy protection agenda. And I hope that's still the the plan once the Build Back Better Act hopefully becomes law. The, the flip side of it is that they may not be able to marshal the votes they need to do what would need to be done to protect the election. Almost everything that they would need to do would would require either beating back a Republican filibuster or changing the filibuster rules so that they could pass new election protections. And while they they seemingly have 50 votes to to pass election protections, they don't seem to have 50 votes to change the filibuster rules so that they could get the underlying 
democracy protections enacted into law. And if they think that they can't succeed, they may reason that it's not worth trying and not also worth making a big public scene about it only to be caught losing in the fight. I genuinely hope that's not the case, but it happens in politics a lot. It happens in Democratic Party politics particularly a lot. And so there may be some ducking from the fight that we're seeing because they have calculated in advance that they can't win. Well, which gets to something I wanted to ask you about as well, which is there's this sense of, I wouldn't say malaise, it's almost defeatism I see in the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. today. I mean, many Democrats are openly, maybe openly is an exaggerate, saying that, you know, we've already lost the 2022 midterms, right? There's this gloom and doom among Democrats. Why? I think a lot of it stems from the down-ballot results of the 2020 election. Joe Biden won the 2020 election by a a fairly large popular vote majority, but it was close in the Electoral College, and Democrats actually lost seats in the House. Their their House majority went from fairly comfortable to razor thin. They lost seats in uh, state, state legislature elections. So they were anticipating a resounding defeat of an unpopular incumbent president. And what they got was a sort of mixed verdict. And it created a sort of crisis of confidence in the Democratic Party's ability to win elections, particularly when someone as unpopular as Trump won't be on the ballot. Then the Virginia election results seem to confirm their suspicions about that. And all of that wrapped up with President Biden's approval ratings slipping to to fairly low, almost Trump-level low levels, made them think that there's almost nothing that they can do in the in the realm of sort of political campaign tactics to make up for how bad the environment is for them at the moment. In- incumbent parties tend to lose their first midterm anyway, and they have multiple things on top of that that, that are pointing in, in the direction of defeat. And so it's it's getting in their heads that that's the only possible outcome, and they're 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 starting to act like it. But I do think that the the fact that they feel disempowered from taking legislative steps that might help them secure the election or or just to protect people. There's an analogous sort of situation happening where there was the Supreme Court oral arguments in the Dobbs case, which threatens to overturn Roe versus Wade. They went predictably badly given how many conservatives there are on the Supreme Court. And very quickly, the the mood in democratic politics changed from if conservatives uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, they've got another thing coming because it'll create this uprising and Republicans will lose the election as a result to the sort of defeatism where they're not going to be able to restore the right to abortion. And so they're not going to want to talk about it, dwell on it, campaign on it, because they can't offer voters, people who are concerned about the the elimination of the right to abortion, a promise that they'll restore it. And so when that sort of sense that they, they don't have the tools they need, the power they need to make things better, they don't want to talk about it at all. And that creates the malaise that I think you're referring to. So talking about the Dobbs case, if they do not make it their number one or a big issue, that's a lost opportunity for Democrats, isn't it? I'm just thinking, listening to you, the Republicans wouldn't worry about not having the solution. They would just attack Democrats for continuing Roe v. Wade. 
I, I think so. I think Republicans have a sense that you should always appear to be on the offensive. You can't imagine Republicans taking the pro-choice position in any fight. But if they were pro-choice, I think the idea would be that they would be out there saying the Supreme Court better not go there. And if they do, we're just going to overturn their decision with our votes. And they would say that without even doing a whip count. They would be threatening court packing, if not having already added seats to the court. Democrats, I think, are in the same spirit I was just talking about, about not wanting to engage on a field of battle where they've already calculated in advance that they're going to lose. They think that if they make the the likely loss of the right to abortion in Dobbs grounds of political contestation, they're going to be expected to do something about, about the decision. They don't think that they're going to be able to because they don't have the votes to change the filibuster rules. And so they're going to want to move on. I don't know how sustainable that's going to be when push comes to shove, if the five most conservative justices fully overturn Roe versus Wade and Democrats think that they can kind of slink away from that without at least a promise of doing something in the, in the, in the next Congress. I think that might not work out as, <laughs> as cleanly as they, they might hope. But that, I think, is the mindset and the difference between the two parties when faced with a sort of looming defeat like this. It's hard for me to believe that Democrats would not see that as an incredible opportunity to turn the conversation around, turn the momentum around, and really go, go on the attack. Combined with something else that you've talked about, Brian, which is, and you mentioned already, they've got also... If Democrats want to take advantage of this, let's say the Dobbs case or anything else, they've got to be willing to tackle the filibuster, right? It, it, now, there's, there's, right? Yeah, there's no way. Now or in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision or whenever, they they can't legislate after Build Back Better, except on sort of budgetary issues, things with taxes and spending involved, unless they change the filibuster. Because the voting rights issue is so existential, they've contemplated this idea of creating a filibuster carve out for democracy related issues. And there's some logic to that. But the realm of policy fights and, and political fights that they in theory could use their legislative power to affect is much broader than than just budgetary issues and also broader than than voting rights issues. And so you're going to have this situation if the Supreme Court comes down, as most people suspect it will, where their ability to do anything in response to react to the Supreme Court's ruling is going to be entirely tied up in whether they can get 50 votes plus the vice president to change the filibuster rules. And if they can't, they're going to have a goose egg to offer yep. voters. And I'm not sure how that's going to shake out. The The idea behind the theoretical backlash to the court throwing out Roe v. Wade is that is that voters will vote for Democrats with the hope or the expectation that the right to abortion will be restored. But if Democrats can't do that or can't even promise it, then I'm not sure where that anger goes. If, if you can't channel it into changing the law back to the to the pre-Dobbs status quo, where does it go? I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. I'm not sure that if they don't do that, they deserve to win, to tell the truth. But uh, I say that as a longtime Democrat, former Democratic chair of California, and one who'd very much like to see the Democrats hold on to the House and the Senate. And the White House, how important is court reform as part of this equation, as part of the democratic message? As pertains to voting rights and, and the right to abortion, I honestly don't see, I think Democrats are fooling themselves if they think that they can simply legislate their way out of the specific problems, right? Republicans are attacking the democracy through voter suppression and election subversion. So you just pass bills to prohibit those sorts mm -hmm. of Antics. Well, 
this Supreme Court is very likely to throw out a lot of the legislative changes that Democrats are contemplating on whatever basis they <laughs> they invent. And it's I think the situation is even uh, more dire on, on the abortion front, because in theory, if Democrats were to respond to a ruling in Dobbs by codifying Roe versus Wade, you know, kind of surprising both of us, changing the filibuster rules, passing the Women's Health Protection Act, codifying Roe, I think that the Republicans would find a, a conservative or a right-wing judge to in, enjoin that new law right away, and this Supreme Court would just throw that law out. And so you can't promise that your efforts to protect the democracy or protect the right to choose are going to, are going to last more than a week or a month or a year unless you also add seats to the courts to you know sort of remedy the, the theft of the last half decade or so, so that the court isn't stacked with all these right-wing activists who intend to just throw out democratic efforts to balance the scales. And, and in terms of court reform, do you see increasing the number of justices? Do you also see term limits? Adding justices is sort of the blunt force way to do it. In a world where Democrats were actually contemplating doing this, then it might make sense to start thinking about structural reforms that aren't just about adding seats every time you control the government to the court. Because every time this issue comes under discussion, anyone who says just add, add four seats to the Supreme Court, the response is, well, when the Republicans control it again, they're just going to add more seats and we're going to ping pong back and forth. And the courts are going to lose their legitimacy. And you know you never know how elections are going to shake out. And so be careful what you wish for. And I, I actually personally don't care if the court loses legitimacy. So it seems like a perfectly fine approach to me. But if Democrats were had decided, had determined that they were going to, to fix the democracy, protect it by any means necessary, so they had already changed the filibuster rules, they were going to add states so that there would be more senators, they had passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Democracy Protection Bill. Once they had committed to that course of action, then I think that these more more technical reforms where you create a sort of senior status for Supreme Court justices and you have five justices appointed appointed by Democrats, five by Republicans, and five appointed by those first 10, those, those kind of changes seem to have merit to me. You only get to the, the point of being able to sort of debate and deliberate what specific reforms you want to do if you've decided, determined that you're going to do something in the first place. It's academic to me to, to talk about what the best way to reform the court is. Like step one has to be to commit to doing it first. And once you have a party that's decided to do it, then you kind of can get into the nitty gritty of, of, of how you want to do it. Right now, right now, I see no evidence that Democrats have any intent of changing the makeup of the court at all. Uh, no, and I, <laughs> I don't see much evidence of their recognizing the importance of the moment and retuning their message, but that's uh, why I wanted to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> and um, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, President Biden's uh, abysmal or declining poll numbers. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about that after we take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Our guest, Brian Boitler who is the editor-in-chief of Crooked Media. We'll be right back. Friends, I don't have to tell you, the holiday season is here when we're all looking for something special for someone special. And there's no better gift than a hand-woven scarf by the real talent in our family, my wife, Carol. Many of you know that Carol's an award-winning weaver. She specializes in original rayon chenille and bamboo scarves, 
each one of which she designs and weaves herself. They come in a great variety of colors and patterns, as you'll find out if you just check out her website for a uh, big look at what's available. Website, carolpressscarves.com. But you better do it soon so she can get your scarf out in the mail in time for the holidays. Again, that website is carolpressscarves.com. You will love them. Treat yourself and or someone you love for a Carol Press scarf. And the connection link to that website, Carol Press Scarves, will be in the episode notes to this podcast. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, today's guest, Brian Beutler, a great strategist, uh, writes often on American politics, of course, as in his position as editor-in-chief of Crooked Media, particularly looking at the Democratic Party and suggesting maybe that how the Democratic Party can get its message out there better and more effectively. So, Brian, let me ask you again, thanks for joining us today. Mm-hmm. you got President Biden He won the presidency, getting more votes than anybody else who ever ran for president. The Democratic Party now controls the White House, the House, and the Senate. Uh, The president succeeded in getting his uh, COVID relief bill passed, $1.9 trillion, getting his infrastructure bill passed and signed, $1.2 trillion, getting his Build Back Better bill, almost $2 trillion through the House, and in some form, it's definitely going to pass the Senate sooner or later. So why doesn't Biden get more credit for what he's accomplished and why is he sinking in the polls? I think that there is an inflated sense in democratic politics that good policy will reap its own rewards in the political realm, that passing bills that are popular will generate goodwill among the public who will then tell pollsters that they think that the president is doing a good job. And I I don't think that recent history lends much credence to that theory. And a president will typically come in at a a high watermark for him or herself, sort of a honeymoon period where some people on the other side are giving him the benefit of the doubt. 
his party is unified and that's so that's the that's sort of the golden period and then what happens from that point forward how long the president's able to retain the highest approval rating of his presidency is sort of determined by what voters are hearing, what voters are feeling, what what sense they have that the president is doing well. And that's a very mediated thing. You don't have the public at large kind of as deeply attuned to the ins and outs of policy as people like like you or me. They get their news from various forms of media and th- those media um, frame events in, in ways. And so over time, most presidents will sort of be dealt body blows by events that are out of their control or by their own screw-ups. And so I think that over the course of Biden's first 10 or 11 months in office, you've seen the sort of toll that those sorts of events have taken on him. For the first 100 or so days of his presidency, when he was as active as he'll probably ever be, when he was passing the American Rescue Plan, everything seemed very dynamic. He was able to sustain a you know mid-50s percent approval rating. Republicans spent that time trying to chew away at it with you know Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss and critical race theory, and they had some success consolidating the opposition against him. But after after they sort of ran out of steam with, with the rescue plan and reverted to a more normal, <laughs> dysfunctional give and take mm-hmm. of legislating, yeah. um, gr- gridlock uh, overcame the party. The, the media's coverage of the withdrawal from Afghanistan was brutal. It accelerated the downward slide in his approval rating. The Delta variant and the reimposition of masking, social distancing rules, the inflation, coverage of inflation. What people were experiencing either directly or through these mediated processes was a negative and chaotic story. And so his his numbers now reflect that. Yeah. Is part of it due to the fact that the media has taken a decidedly negative approach on almost everything? I think so. I mean, I, I, I you can't rerun the last six months with the media having a more positive bent than they did. But even just the coverage of his approval ratings sinking creates this sort of feedback loop of negativity, even stories about positive news are often framed as it's unclear whether this will help Joe Biden's low approval rating. There's you, you end up with this sort of constant drumbeat that this guy is kind of a loser. He's not really doing well. People don't really like him that much. Like the shine has come off. And until that clears itself up, it's hard to imagine the numbers themselves lifting because that's where people are getting their information and people are impressionable. They they assume that the news that they're getting reflects some sort of reality. And if that re- reality being communicated to him is that Biden's hapless or screwing things up or whatever else it is, then when a, a pollster asks them, you know, how do you think he's doing? Do you approve of the job he's doing? They're, they're more likely to say no. Uh, right. I mean, I see it. Almost every story. Uh, Biden signs the big infrastructure bill, right? The biggest public investment, public works since Dwight Eisenhower and the internet highway system. Uh, b- but the next line is, but it won't be enough to improve Biden's approval ratings, right? <laughs> Inevitably, that's the twist. And how about COVID fatigue? That's that's real too, isn't it? And and having an impact. I think so. And I mean, it's, it's hard to know when uh, a, a pollster conducts a poll and asks people how uh, they think the president's doing. You know, people give Biden high marks for how he handles COVID. But if if they're feeling exhausted and anxious and just over the whole COVID experience and they want it behind them, but it's not, you know, maybe that affects the way they think about politics, the way they think about the president what they then tell the pollster. I don't think that it's necessarily the case if that effect is 
is hurting his approval ratings, that that's going to materialize when it comes time to vote in the midterms. You're going to have a choice between parties and the Republican Party's numbers on COVID are terrible. And so even if people are exhausted by COVID, the idea of throwing it open and spreading lies and conspiracy theories about it and trying to vindicate Donald Trump's handling of the pandemic, I don't think that that's going to appeal to a lot of voters. And I mean, you even saw a little bit of this in Virginia where Democrats lost the election, but they didn't lose it because Democrats fell off the fell off the map or just got so discouraged by their disappointment in Biden or something that they failed to show up. They showed up in greater numbers than they showed up for, for Ralph Northam's landslide victory four years ago. It's just that Republicans are so worked up into a lather about everything by the media that they consume that, that they smash turnout records beyond anyone's expectation. And so whatever effect COVID is having on Biden's approval rating, I'm, I, I think that that's a really complicated one to disentangle from political realities or, or to make or, or to draw to draw a line between what how that affects people's impression of Biden and what that means they'll do when it comes time to vote. It, it's very complex, I think. So we're still a year out, but but let me ask you then. So are you on Democratic chances in 2022 and 2024, but obviously 2022 is looming, a year away, are you bullish or bearish on Democratic chances in 2022? And how can they, what do they have to do to turn it around and win? So I, I think in absolute terms, probably bearish, just because it's hard to defeat uh, the patterns of history, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the last four midterms or something like that have been landslide defeats for the incumbent party. Um, however, I think that relative to where the conventional wisdom is about Democrats' chances in 2022, I'm optimistic. What does that mean? I think that the experience of Virginia kind of cast a, a cloud over Democratic politics, but it, it was this sort of one-off experiment that will not be repeated in 2022. You have, you have uh, Terry McAuliffe running against this guy, Glenn Youngkin, who's uh, fresh on the scene. He's a talented campaigner, even though uh, he was an also very dishonest one, I think. He was not a cut from the Trump cloth. In 2022, I think that the way the midterm Mm -hmm. race is covered is going to reflect the fact that a lot of these candidates are are Trump endorsed. They're Trump loyalists. They lie about the election. They lie about COVID. They're um, you know they're authoritarian, and it's going to be harder for Republicans to Mm -hmm. run the kind of race they ran in Virginia nationwide when when the impression of their candidates is so much different than it was when it was Youngkin versus McAuliffe. And I think that will help Democrats. They'll they'll have an opportunity to run against a very unpopular movement, the Trump movement, and convince voters that they they really cannot let that movement reclaim power. That's that's an opening. It's an opportunity. It's a a tool I think they'll have to try to uh, not fall into the same patterns of of the last several midterms. But it, 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 I think it's just very hard to know if it will work or, or how. The, that's interesting because it, it's exactly the kind of election and choice that Donald Trump wants in front of mm-hmm. American people in 2022. And what you're saying is, if that's the case, the best thing for Democrats to say is bring it on. Oh, yeah. We talk a lot about Virginia. We, I have talked a lot about Virginia in the last 30 minutes. Right before Virginia, just a few weeks before Virginia, there was a recall election that that boiled down to a referendum on Governor Gavin Newsom. Do you want him or do you want the Republican guy, Larry Elder? Larry Elder 
unlike Glenn Youngkin, very Trump Trumpy yep. figure, said all has said all kinds of terrible things. He uh, wouldn't promise to respect the results of the election. And Newsom thumped him, and Newsom got general election level turnout for this um, for this recall mm-hmm. election that everyone expected to have low turnout. Um, it's it is possible to galvanize people to remind them of the chaos and awfulness of the Trump years, and that that formation still controls the Republican Party. You know, they'll have to do it more deftly than they did in Virginia. And they'll, they'll, they'll have to welcome confrontation in a way that for the last few months they seem to have been unwilling to do. And they'll have to be lucky enough to get candidates like Larry Elder, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Brian, it's so great to talk to you today. Uh, you are active in so many fields, wear so many hats, but um, what's the best way for people to uh, follow you, to read you, to keep up with you? Uh, where can we find you? Two ways. I write a weekly newsletter for Crooked Media. It's called Big Tent. If you go to crooked.com forward slash newsletters, I think you should subscribe to them all. But that's where I write uh, my my weekly essay. And then I'm active on Twitter at Brian Boitler. Um, it's a weird spelling. It's B-E-U-T-L-E-R. People can find me there. And obviously, while you're at crooked.com, we have a bunch of podcasts that deal with not just politics, but culture, feminism, sports, basically anything you might be interested in, we probably have a show about it. So you can subscribe to those while you're there. Or I hope you do anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely. People are not involved in crooked media. They just don't know what's going on. And don't... <laughs> <laughs> so, Hey, Brian, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy holidays. And we'll, uh, we'll keep up with you uh, and talk again. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Brian Boitler from Crooked Media. By the way, uh, a link to Brian's newsletter, The Big Tent, you'll find in the episode notes to today's podcast. You ought to subscribe to that. It's really great. And we'll be back Friday with our reporters roundtable taking a look at, uh, well, any progress that's been made in the Build Back Better bill and any other news of the week. In the meantime, stay safe, wear that mask, take care of yourselves, and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our roundtable on Friday. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas.